before we consider together the verses that we come to in chapter 8, I just want to cover one thing we didn't say last time, uh, there in those verses we were looking at in chapter 7, um, and given the attack that scripture is so much under these days as to its authority, I just want to say a couple of words about them. Uh, it's there in chapter 7, first of all, it's, where it's in verse 10, 12, and then in verse 25. You get this expression in verse 10, um, to the married I give this command, and he says, not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12, he says, to the rest I say this, I, not the Lord, round the other way. And then in verse 25, he says, um, I have no command from the Lord, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. How are we to understand that? I would suggest to you, um, commentators disagree about it, but I would suggest to you, my own personal uh, understanding of it would be this. What uh, Paul is saying there, first of all, in uh, verse 10, in effect what he's saying is, um, he's in the middle of teaching, he's in the middle of writing this letter, he's in the middle of saying what he wants to say under the direction of the Holy Spirit, and he gets to this point and says, well, Jesus Christ had something to say about this while he was here on earth, and if you like, I'm going to paraphrase what Jesus said. So he's, he's just as we would say today, we sort of put it in quotes, you know, I'm quoting someone else. And so he says there in verse 10, not I but the Lord, I, I'm telling you what Jesus said, in other words, a wife must not be separate from his, her husband. You remember Matthew 19, Jesus teaches that there's only one grounds on which a person can divorce. And so he's, he's quoting Jesus. Then when he gets down to verse 12, he's finished that. He's finished quoting from Jesus' earthly ministry and he's just going under the Holy Spirit. So he says, okay, end a quote, if you like. Now not I, but the Lord. Um, now I, not the Lord. Um, and then when he gets down to verse 25, I suggest what he's, he's saying is that he hasn't got a sense that the Holy Spirit is clearly directing him in what he's saying. Uh, sometimes the writers of Scripture had a very clear awareness that God was directing them to write this uh, as from God. Sometimes they would quote God, sometimes they would just write, but were under a very clear, being driven by the Holy Spirit to say this. Sometimes they weren't. They, they didn't have a conscious awareness that God was actually giving them those words to speak. And I think that's what Paul's saying there, verse 25. I have no command from the Lord. God hasn't specifically given me instruction as to what to say, but I give a judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. Now, my point in saying all of that is simply this. Whether you're quoting Jesus Christ, or whether the writer has a very clear awareness that God is directing him in what he's to say, and he's writing this and saying, I know God is telling me to write this, or whether he is simply relying on the Spirit's indwelling and the Holy Spirit's direction but totally unaware of it makes absolutely no difference to its authority towards us. It is included in the canon of Scripture. The very fact that it is contained within this means it is God's word. So those who would argue that, well, that's just Paul speaking, that's not God at that point, their argument is rubbish. The fact that it is included in Scripture means it is God's word, whether Paul was aware of it or not at the time he wrote it. It comes to us with exactly the same authority as if it was a quote of the Lord Jesus Christ himself while he was here on earth by someone who personally heard him say it. It makes no difference. It is what God has said. Having said that, let's move then into chapter 8. Now, I've given a title for the next few weeks of um, Living Before Others, and this is really just the first part of it. And uh, you'll see when we get on particularly into chapter 10, he really does come back to this again and teach more on it. But this is all about the fact that if you're a Christian, how you live affects other Christians. 
You can't live out your Christian faith in isolation. You can't say, I will do what I want to do or what I believe is right and not worry about how it's going to affect others. It will affect other Christians. It can either help them, encourage them, grow them, shape them, nurture them, lead them towards holiness and maturity in Christ or it can destroy them. But it will affect them. Never be under the idea that what you do doesn't have an effect on others. We're, we're very mindful of it perhaps to the world that what we do, if, you know, people will judge Christ by what they see in us. In the church, what you do affects every other Christian to some degree or another. Now for me, as we come to this chapter 8, we come to what is perhaps the most exciting area of Christianity. Uh, of course there are areas in God's word where God gives very clear lists of things we must not do he says here are my commands as to what you mustn't do do not do this do not do that do not do another black and white things where God says there is no question here this must not be done equally well we come to other places in scripture where we get very clear commands as to things that must be done God says do this love one another Rejoice always. The, the things that, that, we, that are commanded upon us to do. In between, there's a massive area where scripture doesn't say you must do that and it doesn't say you mustn't do that and somehow we've got to work out what we do. And for me, I just find this so exciting. I know some Christians would much prefer it if God had just given us a massive list of do's and don'ts. That anything that happens in your life, you could just come to your Bible, look it up and say, oh, okay, that's what I've got to do today in this situation. God hasn't done that. It's as though God has said to us, look, do you really love me? Are you really concerned for my glory? Then look, I've given you a list of the things you mustn't do. I've given you a list of the things you must do. I've left this massive area in between. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some principles. I'm going to give you some rules, some, some guides as to how you will know how to behave in each and every circumstance. Now, if you really love me and you really want to seek my glory, then you're going to have so much fun working this out. Because every day you're going to find yourself in situations, every place you go, every different culture you go into, you're going to find yourself moving in different ways with different people and you're going to have to look at this again and think again about how you're going to glorify me best in this place. And I tell you, if, if I was preaching this in Ebcom as I did back spring of last year, I'd be saying probably different things to what I'm going to be saying this morning because their culture's different. And the application of this whole area is so culturally bound. And what God's saying is it doesn't matter if we take the principles and, and the things that he teaches us here, you can go anywhere on this planet and glorify God. You can go into any situation and glorify him. You can be faced with any challenge and glorify him without having to learn 9,999 rules and then find you've forgotten the one you needed. And I find that awesome. Romans 14, which is the parallel passage to this in Romans that you really want to read the two if you, you know, go, go and read sort of, uh, 1 Corinthians 8-10 to and Romans 14 uh, and that will give you a great background to where we're going over these next few weeks Romans 14 verse 19 Paul says this let us therefore make every effort to do what leads to peace and to mutual edification and that's what this section is so much about it's about glorifying God 
by working out our faith with each other in a way that we build each other up and we help and encourage each other rather than pull each other down. We start off with a complex conundrum. If you think you've got problems as a Christian living in Britain in 2010, the Corinthians had some problems living there in their day. I guess our problem with food today, if you ask most people what are you most concerned about with eating meat, is going to be the idea that on the meat there might be invisible microbes, um, bacteria, germs, and if they don't prepare their food properly, these invisible germs are going to hitch a lift on the meat into their body and there they're going to wreak havoc with their physical body. That would be most people's concern with eating meat today, wouldn't it? And so they go to great lengths to ensure that they prepare the meat properly so as to destroy the bacteria so that they can't come into their body and damage their body. Back in Paul's day, in the pagan world, their concern was analogous but somewhat different. Their concern was that demons would get into their body. And the way that demons would very often get into their body is by hitching a lift on a piece of meat. Sounds stupid to us, but that's what they believed. And every time they had a piece of meat, demons were likely to jump on the piece of meat, get into their body through that, and they wreak havoc in their bodies. And so what the pagans would do is they would go through certain procedures first in order to ensure that they weren't contaminated by these demons. When they became Christians, they realised that was totally wrong. Now, if that was all it was, just an intellectual exercise of do demons hitch lifts on meat or not and does what's done to these demons affect them or not, if it was just a matter of intellectual knowledge, there wouldn't really be a problem within the church, would there? Some would say, well, I think this and some would say, well, I think that and they'd all rub along fine. But the trouble is, it's not just an intellectual problem. You've got to eat. And what used to happen in their culture was this, if you were a pagan and you bought your meat what you'd do is you'd go first to a priest of your pagan religion and you'd you'd buy more meat than you needed. You'd have to buy about three times what you needed, in fact. And it would be divided into three lots. One lot would be offered as a burnt sacrifice to your pagan god because you've got to appease your god. That's part of your religion. A second portion, the priest would say some magic words over and give you it back and that was now cleansed you could now take that away and eat it without any fear that there was a demon on it who was going to get into your body. The third portion, the priest kept. That was his payment. And understandably, the priest, of course, would take the best portion for himself. I mean, he's not stupid. So by the end of the day, the priest would have this great big mountain of the best quality meat, all that was his. He can't eat it all. So what does he do? He takes the bit he wants, he sells the rest back to the market. So the Christians actually face with two problems. The first problem is when he goes to the market, what meat is he going to buy? He looks around the market, there's no way of identifying which meat has just come from the animal and which meat has gone through this procedure, been given to the priest and sold back to the market again. Maybe that lump of meat there has been offered to a false god. Maybe it's had some mumbo-jumbo words said over it. How do I know? And if I do know, does it matter? That was one dilemma. The other one 
was what happens when you go to eat with someone who's a pagan they serve roast beef and Yorkshire puddings or whatever they had in those days how do you know whether that meat's been dedicated to a false god or not and if it has been does that matter or not and the church was divided over it and that is the problem now the first thing I want us to see is this truth is to be understood and believed do you see that in verses 4 to 6 there there is a very clear answer to those questions as to whether or not it matters there is truth here unequivocal undeniable truth the truth is there is no God except Jehovah God those in the church that are saying well they're just idols they don't mean anything they're just lumps of wood or lumps of stone doesn't matter what's been how they've been treated or how they've been looked at they are nothing are absolutely right and Paul says that he doesn't mince his words there we know that an idol is nothing verse 4 nothing at all in the world and there is no God but one even if there are so-called gods, blah, blah, blah. Um, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom all things came and for whom we live. So Paul's adamant, there is truth to be discerned here. We need to know what truth is. You know, when we come to these areas where we can end up like here, sort of saying, well, in that culture they think like that and this one like this and do this. Let's not lose sight of what is objective truth. We live in a generation where they deny the reality of objective truth, don't they? If it works for you, fine. That works for you, that's great. This works for me. That that is not biblical truth. God says there is objective truth. The truth is that a stone is nothing. It doesn't matter what's being done to it. A piece of carved wood is nothing. An altar is nothing. There is one God, Jehovah God, who created the heavens and earth and all that's in it. He has eternally coexisted in three persons, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He and he alone deserves our worship and our praise. There is no other God but he. That's the truth. And Paul doesn't hide that. He doesn't say that's not important. He says, look, let's understand that. So you might think, in that case, the question is going to be easily settled. Surely what he's now going to do is to turn around to those who can't see that and say, look, wake up, those stones and those things are nothing. Forget all about them, just get on and eat the meat, you're causing a problem in the church. He doesn't say that at all, does he? He actually says completely the opposite. He doesn't say a word against those who can see the truth. Sorry, he doesn't say a word in favour of those who can see the truth. He doesn't say a word against those who can't. He says everything against those who can see the truth. All of the criticism here is against those who can actually see the truth because they're mishandling it. They can see the truth and instead of graciously using it to help their brothers and sisters, they're using it as a hammer to hit them over the head and destroy them. And that's a horrific thing, isn't it? And sadly there are people like that in the church who have got wonderful discernment, they can come to God's word and they can grasp it and they can understand it and they can grasp what is true and what is false and they can see whether something's important or not and it's black and white to them. But they've got no grace and no gentleness and no ability to come alongside someone who sees it differently and help them. What they actually end up doing is damaging them, hurting them 
with this truth that they know. Truth without love is worthless. Just look at those first three verses. That's a frightening conclusion, isn't it? But that's what Paul's saying there. We know that we all possess knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. The man who thinks he knows something does not yet know as he ought to know, but the man who loves God is known by God. His whole focus there is on love rather than knowledge, isn't it? Now, that's not to diminish knowledge. We've already said knowledge is knowable and knowledge is important. You've only got to read through Paul's letters to know how high value he placed on knowing the truth. But it's no substitute for love. And there are churches that are so doctrinally correct but totally deficient in love. That's an horrific thing to be. You know, you can have every doctrine right, every aspect of theology right, you can cross all the I's, dot all the T's, dot all the I's and cross all the T's. You, you can know it inside out and you can be stone cold hard. And that's not worth anything, says Paul. It's love that matters. And if we can't handle that truth in love, then we're not gaining anything from knowing that truth, are we? In fact, he makes two interesting comments on people who do, isn't he? Verse 1, they don't have an exclusive handle on the truth. These people who set themselves up and sort of say, well, I know all the truth and I've got all this mapped and I know and, and I'm telling you you're wrong and, and sort of like that over everything, not, not just clear doctrine where we need to be like that, but over these areas, these grey areas particularly. Paul's comment on them, verse 2, well, doesn't know what he ought to know. And verse 1, we all possess knowledge. You know, they've not got an exclusive handle on it. Yes, they happen to know the truth about that thing. Something else they probably don't know the truth about, but somebody else does. We, we've, we, every Christian has an amount of knowledge of the truth, or they couldn't be a Christian. So if you look down on another Christian and condemn them, just remember the moment, they, they know some truth as well. Maybe they don't know as much truth as you. Maybe something is glaringly obvious to you and seems hidden from them. But if they're a Christian, they know truth. Or they couldn't have been saved. And for however much you know, you don't know as much as you ought to know, or as much as you could know. Verse 2. You don't know as one day you will know, that's for sure. I do wonder sometimes about particularly churches that have got the Lord's return all mapped out so perfectly. They seem to know every detail about how he's going to return. Every order of everything that's going to happen. They've got it all mapped out so perfectly and I think, do you know, I think you're going to be wrong. Do you know, I think in the end the only one who really knows is God himself. Perfectly. Now don't misunderstand me. Study your Bible all you can to understand as best as you possibly can but don't think you know it all until you see Jesus, then you will. Yeah. Truth without love is, worship, is worthless. So my friends, while you cling to the truth you know and you strive to ever know more truth, treat what you know with grace and gentleness with those who don't yet know it. 
or who think differently to you on a point of it. I'm not talking about the, the essentials. I'm not talking about whether or not you can be saved without coming through the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not talking about whether Christ actually paid for your sin in his body on the cross. Thing, things that are unquestionably stated in scripture and must be believed. But this massive area between where God says don't do that and do do that, all these things in between that's so cultural do you know, I mean my mum's with the Lord now but I can remember her telling me that when she was young a woman did not wear trousers certainly a Christian woman would not be seen dead in a pair of trousers how many Christian ladies here wear trousers? you know, I'm not asking you to put your hands up but I mean you go back a few generations you wouldn't have done that was not woman's clothes that was men's clothes scripture says a woman does not wear men's clothes and men does not, do not wear women's clothes how long your hair is you know what sort of music there are obviously music that you say you would, no Christian would listen to that song but categories I mean, all sorts of things that are very cultural whether you shop or not on a Sunday can believe we went to Malawi all the Christians are coming out of church into the market and we said to one of the Christians about it they said they've got much bigger problems than that to worry about before they get on to worry about things like that that's, that's, market, that's, that's market day for them these, these things are very cultural they're, they're very they're very grey if you know a truth about it handle it gently and handle it graciously for those who think differently freedom for one is sin for another verses 7 to 9 can I suggest to you this comes as a great surprise to many people when they first become Christians and having become a Christian they want to know what's right and what's wrong and they want to know whether it's okay to do that or not okay to do that and you try to explain to them this amazing thing that there are things that for one Christian to do them is right and for another Christian to do them is actually sinful that seems amazing doesn't it and that's what God's word teaches those things where God's word doesn't explicitly say don't do them or explicitly do them those things in between Paul says we come to them and we let our conscience be our guide and you let your conscience dictate you whether for you that is a right thing to do or a wrong thing to do so in verses 7 to 9 everyone knows this some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat such food they think of it as having been sacrificed to an idol and since their conscience is weak it is defiled it's defiled by the fact that their conscience is weak not what it's gone through not what's happened to it it's actually because of their own thinking on it but food does not bring us near to God we are no worse if we do not eat, no better if we do. Be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. So Paul says, there are some Christians who will look at something and say, my conscience troubles me about doing that. He describes those as the weaker Christians. They might think of themselves as the stronger ones. I can resist that, I don't do that, I don't do that, I don't do that. They might think of that as being a very strong attitude to take, God says, if it's in this grey area, that's actually a sign of their weakness. And he uses the word over and again there, doesn't he? Verse 7, 9, 10, 11, 12, five times he talks about them being weak. 
But his point is this. If their conscience tells them, conscience tells them they shouldn't do it and they do it, they actually sin. They will actually sin. Romans 14 puts it even more plainly. Romans 14 verse 14 As one who is in the Lord Jesus, I am fully convinced that no food is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for him it is unclean. And verse 23 of Romans 14, But the man who has doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and everything that does not come from faith is sin. Do you see it? Man who has doubts is condemned if he eats. Because his eating is not from faith and everything that does not come from faith is sin. So you end up with a situation where there are things that if any of us do them are sinful, God says, do not do that, black and white. And if anyone does it, they're sinning. And there are other things where two Christians can look at them and one can do it, and that could be perfectly right, and the brother and sister could do it and they can sin. In other words, literally, you could have gone to that market there in Corinth, you could have bought one piece of meat, you could have taken it home, you could have cut it in half and you could have shared it with someone else, two Christians sitting down there, you could have both eaten half of that piece of meat and in doing it, one of you could have glorified God and the other one of you could have sinned. That is why it is so important how we conduct ourselves to help our weaker brothers and sisters to prevent that happening. Do you see? I can't just go and do something therefore and say, well I don't care about what anyone else thinks of this, my conscience is clear. Because if they copy you, they might sin. And you will be directly responsible for them sinning. And Paul says here, when you do that, you actually sin against Christ. That's how Christ sees it. You've sinned against his child. And whatever you do to the least of these, you do to me, says Jesus. So we have to take this so seriously, don't we? The strong must protect the weak. And we're not going to have time to really develop this, but it doesn't matter because it carries on next time. The strong must protect the weak. That's the charge on the strong. If your conscience lets you look at something and be clear that Scripture doesn't say it's wrong, if, it, if you look at something in that area in between and your conscience tells you as it's quickened by the Holy Spirit that you can do that without any problem at all then you're the stronger Christian in that and the onus is on you to protect the weaker Christians in that. It's not on them, it's on you. Your next thought must be if I do this what effect is it going to have on my brothers and sisters? If I voice this opinion, what effect is it going to have on them? If I tell them that I do it, what effect is it going to have on them? Are they going to go and copy me? Not because their conscience is clear, but because they've seen me do it and they think I'm a prominent Christian, I'm a responsible Christian, I'm a mature Christian, and, and so they're going to copy me and thereby sin? How could I want that to happen? That would be horrific. I would rather not do it, says Paul. He says, I'd rather become a vegetarian than risk doing that to my brothers and sisters. Do you start to see the awesome dynamics in this subject that goes on through these next couple of chapters? 
Does this excite you? I hope it does. I mean, it stretches us, it should frighten us, but it should excite us. That God is saying to you, are you my child? Have you come to the cross? Have you bowed your knee there and worshipped Jesus? Have you asked him to forgive you for your sin? Have you recognised that before a holy God you are a sinner in need of his forgiveness? Have you turned away from that life? Are you now trying to follow Jesus? Are you now trying to be holy like he's holy? Then God says, okay, just kick all that light out the window that I say don't do. Stop that right away. Now look at this lovely area that you're left with. You're just going to have so much fun the rest of your life because every day you're going to be examining this and examining your life again and every move you make and every new people you start working with, every time a new Christian comes in the church, you're going to be looking at the dynamics of this saying, how I handle this is going to affect them. Can I handle this in a way that's going to help them and build them up and encourage them? Or am I going to handle it in a way that damages them and destroys them and causes them pain? Do I want to glorify God here? Or do I just want to enjoy my freedom irrespective of what it does to others? Do I love my brothers and sisters as much as Christ loved me? One Corinthians ten thirty one. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And over everything, just write up verse eleven of this chapter eight. So this weak brother, for whom Christ died, is destroyed by your knowledge. Can you think of anything worse than that? I can't. Let's pray. Father God, I want to bless you for this amazing, challenging, dynamic life that you've called us to to live as Christians. This life where day by day we can examine ourselves and examine our actions and our motives and our heart and our conscience and look at all the changing environment around us as laws change and as attitudes change and society changes and we move into different cultures and Father I just bless you that we can just have this joy this thrill of keep going back to your word and back to the Spirit's prompting and just uh, reevaluate again how we're living in it not to damage or destroy our brothers and sisters for whom Christ died but that we can do it in such a way that we can encourage them and build them up and strengthen them and grow them and show to them the love that Christ has put in our hearts Father I realise this can be a frightening thought for someone who's only just become a Christian and would so much like to have just some easy black and white yes and no's Father I pray that the thrill of this life would really just come home to them and they'd start to enjoy that lifelong journey of day by day discovering how you want us to live for the glory of Christ in a fallen, fractured world for his glory. Amen.